Welcome to Tech Breakfast, today's top headlines served hot by your host Aaron Bewley and Tyler Gates. So grab your coffee and let's get into it. It's Friday, September 4th. On the show with us today is Matt Baker, originally known as Racer X, and I'm going to give him a chance to talk about that if he wants. He's Senior VP of Strategy at Dell, tending to focus on areas like cloud, data, artificial intelligence, etc. He also has a philosophy minor, which is the conversation that brought him here with us today. Some fun facts. He loves to be out on the water fishing, but is headed deep into the woods soon for an elk hunt. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt W. Baker, and that's two T's on the mat there, where uh, you can also catch his musings on his show, Baker's Half Dozen. Welcome to the show, Matt. It's great to be here. Thank you for that introduction. It was it was uh, it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of picked a bunch of random things I knew about I, you. I know you, you did well. <laughs> yeah, and as I was typing it, I was like, I know a surprisingly good amount about this guy. Yeah, I try to put it out there. Yeah, which is good, man. It's good. I think uh, I think more people should do that. Is there anything else about yourself that you want to share before we dive into some of these questions from the audience? No, it, I mean, it made me sound like some crazy sportsman, um, which I guess I sort of am, but I have a pretty broad range of interests. So um, uh, anyhow, that's yeah. that, that's enough about me. Sportsman it is. <laughs> <laughs> one of many things, one of many things. Okay, uh, so we got the most response uh, on this one. Uh, historically, we've had some people on and I said, hey, throw us some questions. Uh, I don't know if you know John Nicholson over at VMware, but he went off and dropped like 10 questions on you. And then we got questions from several other people. Where do you see AI and ML? So for, for let me, so artificial intelligence and machine learning, where do you see that being adopted outside of the Fortune 5000? Uh, well, you know, I think the thing that I find most interesting about the topic is that we kind of have fetishized AI and ML. It's everywhere already. I mean, we're all using it all the time. It might not be the the most fancy, you know, barn burning version of it, but it's built into all sorts of stuff that we interact with in our daily lives. Anytime you're browsing the web, anytime you're doing anything, and, and those libraries are available to pretty much anybody. You know, it's it's solutions like um What's the one from Massachusetts right down the street from Hopkinton? I'll come back to it. But it's basically a workbench for creating machine learning algorithms. And it's a lot like working inside of Microsoft Excel. It's super easy to use. And tons of people cool. outside of Fortune 500 use it. Also, yeah. you said Microsoft Excel and I got excited. <laughs> old, old habits. Old habits. Well, it's actually... So you touched <laughs> on something there, too, that I'm, I'm seeing more and more of where people are solving that problem of simplifying... Yeah. Uh, the the interface into that where you can have a data scientist that can truly do data science things. That's not a real word, but <laughs> because they make the interface easier, right? And they, they simplify all those kinds of things. So that's a good point there. Well, yeah, and the workbench is populated with all these um, different algorithms that you can match up with the problem you're trying to solve. And it, it just kind of it's very approachable. pulls it together. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, you know, it, even to the point that it has a... a video analytics, a real-time video analytics um, capability. So you can oh, sort wow. of design a, um, say, an in-store video surveillance for, you know, loss prevention, theft and loss prevention. So it's yeah. it's, it's really powerful. 
And I'll, it, oh, the, the name will come to mind at some point here. That's incredible, though. But it, it brings up a good point, right? I, I, I like I like that you you know immediately jumped to people are excited about where this is going, but they're they're unaware of just how prevalent it is, right? And I, I imagine there's a litany of tools that most of us use every day that that have a lot of AI and ML already going on in the background. What do you think it is that um, I, I guess to to steal your word has fetishized it? What 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 are people expecting AI ML to look like that they aren't really grasping how how prevalent it is already? In one word, androids. <laughs> That's awesome, and you're probably right. I think everyone everyone's uh, has this uh, tendency to to anthropomorphize technology, and so the closest thing is is an android. And I think it also preys on everyone's fears about this machine that is stronger and, and better and faster than, than all of us. And it yeah. just sort of picks at a nerve that everybody has around their, their general inadequacy, right? Like Suddenly becoming what, obsolete. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so where do you stand on, on Elon Musk, uh, who, by the way, has an open invitation to come on the show and discuss this with us? <laughs> But for some reason, just hasn't responded. Uh, he seems to think that we need things like the neural link in order to avoid becoming the pets of the AI androids you're describing. So I'm I'm curious as to where you stand on on that argument. Well, I, you know, I think that the the idea. Let's separate the two for a second. First of all, you know, Musk's belief is that AI will ultimately become weaponized and that we as humans can't help ourselves from doing that. Um, the second thing is that he believes that our capability is far greater than our body allows it to be, right? So in essence, if you've heard his interview on JRE, on the Joe Rogan podcast, he talks about we inherently have a throughput bandwidth problem between our brains and the people around us. And so the idea with Neuralink is to widen that bandwidth because our mouths can only move so quickly. Our ears can actually process much more quickly than our mouth is capable of creating sounds. So I, you know, I'm not sure his sole motivation is to create a, a defense against a runaway AI. Um, but that might be part of it, but I think more he really wants to unlock human potential by widening the bandwidth coming out of our skulls. And, um, you know, who knows if he'll be successful. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, and then bi-directionally too, right? So I know Correct. Kung Fu comes to mind immediately. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we kind of talked about this on Wednesday, um, the, the last guest that we had on, Britton Johnson, he has a daughter that's deaf. And so we were talking about different ways to uh, or, or different innovations in uh, in and around American Sign Language, or just communicating via speech to text kind of things to an app, and that's where I joked about Neuralink being able to just kind of telepathically communicate uh, between the two, which sounds a little crazy, but seems like that might be possible. Well, and, and be the North Star. That's the angle that he's he's ultimately going after, which is to um, to help address folks with disabilities, right? So. Can you make someone who's paralyzed walk again um, yeah. through these human machine interfaces? And I, I mean, it's a noble goal to go after. And you know, the the his his crazy rantings 
garner headlines, but ultimately we've seen he can create pragmatic results, right? Yeah. Great cars. Yeah. Great rockets. Yeah, he's hey, got the quite quite the pedigree of succeeding in, in some it. pretty Yeah. Yeah. But no, that is exciting though, because it's very lofty, but he's he's proven that lofty doesn't stop him. So that's well setting that's moonshot goals is the only way you're gonna achieve something. And if you know, if we all didn't feel like we never live up to our full potential. Um, it's just you have to strive, strive, strive. So why don't you set audacious yeah. goals and try to get there? Because you that, you just might. That actually, uh, and it, it's not on the list, so uh, sorry. But uh, moonshot goals is actually something I wanted to ask you about your role with Dell. Um, I know companies like Google Alphabet, uh, even Apple, and and some of the other, I guess, I know, traditional tech companies are are a little bit more public, I think, about what their moonshot goals are. Can you talk about anything like that that either you are responsible for or privy to at, at Dell that, that can be public, right? Yeah, I've been pretty public about that. Yeah, well, there you I, go. Maybe I'm just unfamiliar. Yeah, and I would say that what you, what I think you're we there you can moonshot goals can serve a couple of purposes. A lot of the moonshots that you refer to are moonshot technology goals, right? Like we want to be able to um, create a network that's balloons flying over rural areas, right? Our moonshot goals focus more on social justice issues, equality, diversity, um, you know, environmental impact goals, et cetera. And in fact, that's how we couch them as we set these lofty moonshot goals because they're hard. And that's why we set them. And uh, and we are going to try like hell for the next 10 years to meet those goals. Yeah, it's really interesting and, and you know, laudable for, for a tech company to be setting sort of the, the social goals as opposed to technology goals. That's uh, that's actually pretty cool. Can you yeah, well, talk about a, some of them? We have a responsibility to to have a positive impact on the communities around us. Right. So. I, I, I'm not going to enumerate them all, but you know, it's along the lines of achieving greater uh, gender equality in the workplace, um, racial equality, um, really reducing our impact on the environment. You know, we deal, we 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 create machines, as those those machines require raw materials, they require shipping um, containers, right? So you know, we've we've got some great examples of capturing. Um, exhaust from diesel generators to create ink that we use to print out various things within the stuff we ship out to customers. That's cool. We, we make um, packing packing material out of mushrooms. Um, we do all sorts of innovative things. And, and uh, one of the key areas is around um, this notion of a, of a, a closed loop uh, economy or a circular economy where we're while we use plastic, we then harvest that plastic back and reuse it and try to create a tight loop so that we're not, you know, basically uh, creating waste, but instead we're using waste um, to then reproduce whatever we're doing. In fact, we do crazy things with um, little pieces of carbon fiber that were on the cutting room floor in different manufacturing and then we are able to reuse that and create carbon fiber elements of our pcs very cool 
I didn't know about the mushroom thing. I knew we yeah. like reclaimed ocean plastics and whatnot. I mean, you see that, you know, last time I opened up my, my new laptop, the that's, you know, there's a, a stamp of a whale and it says, you know, X amount or whatever, or hundred percent of this is reclaimed plastic from the ocean. I did not know about the mushrooms. To make yeah, that, that was, that was uh, super cool. three or four years ago. And it's basically, that's you know, cool. that, that shaped, what looks like shaped carb cardboard where you uh-huh. would put a piece, put a component that is, so it's a little bit firmer. The, is that, I, is that the I kind mean, of, it, I, I think it's, it's just highly renewable, right? So oh, okay. it's, it's easy to, um, it's easy to build and, and, and doesn't have the environmental foot, uh, the waste footprint of other packaging materials. Oh. Yeah, no, no, I understood that. I, I meant just like from an identification perspective, I was trying to imagine what packing materials might have been made from the mushrooms as opposed to a traditional sort of paper-based. Oh, sure. Or- I'm not sure exactly which ones, but I'm, I I know there are a few white papers on cool. on these various innovations that, that we have out there. Hey, let me uh, throw something else at you. That This question is also from the John Nicholson, and I think this is a setup here. Because uh, the three of us live up here in Dallas, and you and ha- he lives in Houston, and you're in Austin. He said, "Why is Dallas the worst place for barbecue in Texas?" Because <laughs> it's not <laughs> leading the objection. <laughs> you know, it's funny barbecue. Barbecue is like it, you know, it, you shouldn't talk about politics, religion, or barbecue um, because it's a, it's, a, it's a third religion, but. Uh, um, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but what I will say when I first got here, I'm, I'm big into food. Um, I love, I love cooking. Uh, of course I love eating too much, which is why I have to run with a weighted thing on my chest to try to lose the weight from that, uh, barbecue. But, uh, when I first got here, someone told me that Texas has like seven documented different styles of barbecue and, like I didn't, I didn't really believe them, but then I started traveling around and I started to understand that yes, indeed, there are these very discrete styles of barbecue, like central Texas, post Oak, salt and pepper only. And then you go out to Lano and you've got something like Cooper's old time, which is, I think they, that, that style's called cowboy style. And it, instead of using post Oak, they turn the oak or mesquite into charcoal first before they put it in the smoker. So it just, it, it imparts a, a different character on the meat. Um, and then you have Houston, which is a little bit closer to classic Southern styles, like from Mississippi with sauce. Um, and I would imagine, I mean, just guessing is that there's just like, for example, different influences that come from from Kansas city down to Dallas because of the, you know, Chisholm trail and, you know, shipping beef North. I don't know, but there's certainly many different styles. And then you have barbacoa down along the border. So you've got all oh, these different things. Oh yeah. My favorite. And I left that out of your intro. Uh, if, if y'all go follow him on Twitter, you'll also see uh, his socially distant chef hashtags as well. Um, so you I, I'm, incredibly, I'm incredibly impressed by the depth that you just took that question. Yeah, <laughs> I did not know that that was, was going to go that far. Nope, was not expecting it. Well <laughs> That's done. That's awesome. <laughs> Where I, did you move from? Well, oh, I, I actually lived in Arizona for seven years, but I grew up in Maryland. And that's why you see anytime oh, I'm filming yeah. something, you'll see the Maryland flag uh, gotcha. prominently displayed. Okay. So for someone going to college right now, 
What should they study or, or major in? Data science. Or With should they go to college? Well, Let's start there. I think they should. I think, okay. you, know, the, you know, there's a lot of things. So something people are always laugh about is that, you know, I have this position at Dell. I deal in tech a lot. I can go pretty deep, but I actually have a, a degree in English um, and political science and a minor in philosophy. So, or an almost minor. I don't think I officially got enough hours for that minor. But so I had a double major in two things that have nothing to do with technology. <laughs> the most important thing about college is not necessarily the field you study, but the development of your critical thinking skills. And in this world, as it is today, the most important thing you can learn is critical thinking skills. I agree there's 100%. so much yeah. going on around Absolutely. us. And unfortunately, you don't get to that point in high school, right? Like high school is really about a general base of facts and understandings. And if you're privileged enough to go to like a private school, you get a degree of that collegiate um, training. Um, but for the most part, it's it's trying to get you a base of knowledge and, and a set of tools so that you can go on to, to college and learn those critical thinking skills. So, you know, what should people study? I think data science is a great thing to study, but I would match it up with a a minor in philosophy or ethics. Um, it's really, I, I, I'm a product of a liberal arts education and I value it tremendously versus my, you know, I've learned a lot of technology on the job, a lot, yeah. too much. I've, I've forgotten more than I, I remember. You know, I've just forgotten a lot already. Yeah, uh, that's that's brilliant. That actually reminds me of my my grandfather's perspective, and and therefore also my mother's in this case uh, on liberal arts education in general and and college as well. Uh, it was more about you know teaching you how to think um, and exposing you to, to kind of I think the point you were making too some of the stuff that isn't necessarily just vocational, right? So yeah, go study data science, but don't don't forget that there's a lot of the way the world works and a lot of how you consume information that isn't going to be presented in an engineering textbook if you will right that's so, right that's, that's cool i think it's also true that you know a multidisciplinary um approach is sort of the the tech world that we're heading into and mm -hmm. so if you think about um you know, why is there a data science program at the, at the Macomb School of Business at UT? It's because without the business logic, you don't know what questions to ask. So you could be the greatest data scientist in the world, but you don't understand the sort of rhythms of business that you need to then use your science knowledge to apply and create really interesting capabilities with AI, ML, and all those other buzzwords. Yeah, yeah, and and, and really good liberal arts programs too are no matter what you pick for your majors minors, um, even if they're strictly technical, the most most good liberal arts programs are going to have requirements for some uh, of those sort of topics. My, some of my favorite classes, even though I was a very deeply technical sort of pursuit in in my education were the classes that I was required to take, and I'll call them general education, but they were all very specialized classes that went into ethics and societal and just sort of logic, um, but philosophical logic as opposed to, uh, you know, computer logic as an example. And uh, are you talking, that's, that's really cool. 
Are you talking about the midnight frisbee class you had to take? <laughs> yeah, yes. It was similar. So, no. All I, jokes aside, you know, they, 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 they called those wellness, but um, no. So I went to SMU and the, the, I forget how many hours, but it was quite a few were required to be uh, what they called cultural formations or, yeah, I think that's, I think that was the, the call out for them. But um, they're specifically outside of your uh, major yeah. and minors, right? You can find some that are tangentially related, but uh, they were hands down some of the best classes I had because they focused a lot more on how how to think more globally as opposed to think about an engineering problem. And uh, yeah. I just, I loved them. Tyler had like a triple major in physics, engineering, and math. And they were like, get out, boy. Go throw a frisbee. Go, go outside and throw a frisbee. Uh, all right. So I, I, I have a question to, to follow okay. on from there. I, yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's interesting because of your background, um, seemingly, at least where you started from, was so different than where you've ended up as far as uh, your role at Dell. And so I'm just curious, I think it, it gives you a lot of different perspectives you can work from, which is probably very valuable for someone who works in strategy in general. So I would just be curious as to what a day in the life is like for a SVP of, of strategy at Dell. Well, it's a lot of Zoom meetings now. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's really, um, all about keeping all of us intellectually honest, right? Like, can we do this? What, how should we do it? Um, where are the new opportunities? Where are the, you know, where are these old opportunities have, you know, should we stop doing, you know, it's funny. Stopping doing things is really hard for people. And, mm. you know, and so that intellectual honesty that I talked about is to say, Hey, is it still really paying dividends to operate like this, right? Or should we change, should we change the way we're doing something? And so it's really about constantly examining and questioning what we're doing, how we're doing it, and if it can be done a better way. And maybe what new things should we do that create new business opportunities? So that in a nutshell is um, the role of a strategist. Um, but it's something that we should all do every day, right? Is is it's it's almost a little bit of creative destruction, right? Like, all right, let's tear down our assumptions and rebuild them better, stronger, faster. Um, and that really is what it's all about. That's interesting. So I'd imagine that you you have a <clears throat> a whole team that that works uh, in in this regard. Uh, I have a just... small team actually. I have a, okay. a, a group of of. 10 folks that do core strategy and we work with, you know, if you go in any large company, you'll find there are lots of people with the title strategy and that's good. Um, and so what we do is we go and partner up and work horizontally um, to come up with new ways of doing things. So um, while my team is small, uh, we, we really try to, knit the fabric of the company together so that we build better outcomes for our customers by, we do a lot at Dell Technologies, right? And if we were to do those things and not sort of combine them together to create greater impact, we're doing a disservice to, to ourselves and our customers. So pulling all of those together in new and unique ways and figuring out how to do them better collectively 
that's the name of the game. Yeah, that's really cool. Something we talk about often is this. Uh, it's a concept that Simon Sinek, who's a who's an, a leadership author, he he brings up a lot, and it's the term of psychological safety. I would imagine for you to have to kind of be in a position of challenging both what you're doing now and what you should be doing forward. You and your team of ten people probably all have to be very comfortable with being psychologically safe to be able to challenge sort of the status quo. I feel like that's probably something that's important culturally to, to what you guys do. Yeah, I would say, I would say that sometimes we're too, um, psych psychologically terrified, right? Like, sure. You I think a lot of people are I, exactly. And I think that, that you, that's, that's part of the, the job is, is getting comfortable asking uncomfortable questions. And, and, and to be honest with you, one of the key lessons I have about doing strategy is, you know, I do come and, you know, mess with people's cheese, as they say, right? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, establishing that you're doing this for the greater good is paramount, right? Because in a lot of cases, what people remember is someone with a strategy title or, or a consultant or something coming in and basically not only messing with their cheese, but taking a big chunk of it for their, for their own. And so I actually think that it's less about creating or having psychological safety for myself. It's creating it for the people that I'm working with and, and, and ensuring they understand that I'm doing this for the, for the create the collective good, not for myself. Um, yeah. and, As and any I, good leader should. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a fantastic ethos. Uh, it, it reminds me actually, or I, have you ever read or, uh, the book, um, what's it called? Uh, man, I'm blanking. Great question. Um, <laughs> enlightenment now, uh, by, uh, Stephen and I forget the author's name, but it, it's, uh, it, it talks about sort of the state of the world on a, an analytical basis and, and how good things actually are right now. But it, it's very philosophical at the same time. It's, it's an excellent read if you haven't. Uh, and it sounds just based on how you kind of are exposing the way you think to us now, the, like a book that you'd really enjoy. Yeah. And I think that was on uh, Bill Gates reading list two or three years ago, if I remember correctly. And I, I have not read it. Um, it is fantastic. Well, I, I'll check it out. But I, I do, I have looked at, there's a summary of that book on a website somewhere that I think Bill Gates in his, that, that annual book list that he puts out, um, uh, had listed out. And it just sort of highlighted how much human progress there has been mm -hmm. um, and how our quality of life around the globe has improved. Because everyone, you know, it was interesting. I, I did a, a, a talk, a pre-recorded talk for an event that we're doing in EMEA. Um, and, and I kind of mentioned, you know, this notion of digital transformation and technology everywhere and the edge. And, and there was something that, um, that the at CTO advisor had, uh, had said about farmers don't talk about the edge. They talk about tractors, right? And um, it just got me to thinking, you know, we always we always think of farmers in this sort of um, bucolic, 
hayseed manner, right? Which I think is terribly, um, uh, is a, is a, is a deep insult to farmers. Um, because if, you know, I, I'm old enough to have been alive in the seventies when everyone was freaking out about, uh, overpopulation and, you know, there was going to be mass starvation and, and we needed to control population in the same way the Chinese did in the seventies and eighties, um, by quoting people. And the reality is, is that, you know, a few billion dollars, a few billion people later, um, through data science largely, and also all sorts of other genetic and and other um, achievements, we are able to largely, there's too much hunger in the world today still, but that doesn't have to do with supply that has to do with economics and corruption, right? right? So, so, but we are able to feed the world and it's, we're way past where the people in the, in the seventies thought we were going to start to collapse. So we are, there's actually a whole section of that book that, that gets into that. Um, and, and it was, it is, it's absolutely fascinating and it's neat to kind of see what happens with technology, but one of the underlying themes, not so much focused on how much progress has been made, uh, is that people, to continue making these kinds of progress or this kind of progress, it's still very much necessary for people to sort of act the way that you are are talking about, is which is taking this social let's do good for everyone sort of approach to everything that we're trying to do to continue to lift to the average higher, right? So if you if you're looking at it and people say, well, the point of the book wasn't just look at all the progress we made. Things aren't as bad as maybe news headlines imply. The only reason we got there is because of people like you who are taking a an active participation in a giant tech company to make sure that they're doing the right things for society and people in general. Um, so it's that's that's it's really really neat. Yeah, and I, I mean it's the responsibility of of the of people who are more fortunate are in an, are in a position to have an impact. If you don't, then, I mean, that's approaching evil, right? It's like, mm-hmm. if, you, if you have, you need to help others. It's, it's just the right thing to do. Um, and so I do think that, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, we're in some dark times right now on all sorts of, 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 um, for all different reasons, right? Obviously pandemic being, uh, being the primary one. Um, but we have to, we have to know our better selves and we have to know what we're capable of and keep focused on that. Um, and really just keep making a difference. Otherwise the, you know, the, the powers of darkness take over. There's a reason why superhero stories are built the way they are, right? It's it's in in essence to say we have the capability for great great good and great destruction and we have to choose the right one. Gosh, we really did get philosophical. Yeah, yeah, yeah we did. I no, it, this man. is great. I I, I look right up my quick- alley. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, you're you're going to have to come back because Absolutely. there's a lot more that we need to talk about and we're running out of time here. Some quick notes on what y'all were just talking about. So uh, thank you for sharing that uh, that little um, factoid about Gates. I did not know that. I Googled what y'all were talking about. And that actually, he listed it in that blog you were talking about. said it's his new favorite book of all time. Uh, Stephen Ooh. Pinker is the author. Pinker, yeah, yes. Right. 
yeah, and, and Pinker, and, and, Pinker's brilliant. I've run into some of his other stuff too. Um, and, and then the folks, especially that he references a lot in the economist side, um, they're also excellent authors, but continue. Yeah. Well, yeah. So his, his subtitle there for the book, uh, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. And then Gates, uh, he pulls out five of his favorite facts from the book that I wanted to share real quick. Uh, you're 37 times less likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning than you were at the turn of the century. Just finished right? that chapter. It's not because there's fewer thunderstorms, but you can, uh, I won't spoil the surprise there. Uh, time spent doing laundry fell from 11 and a half hours a week in 1920 to an hour and a half in 2014. You're way less likely to die on the job. That's number three. So that's good. Global average IQ score rising by about 31 or sorry, excuse me, three IQ points every decade. That that section of the book is fascinating as well, because it actually I, I forget the name of the gentleman who who put together the thought process, but he actually predicted that this was happening. And everyone said, well, that doesn't make any sense because it's it's hereditary and we're not doing enough as a species to really like change our makeup, but it is, it is fact at this point, there is yeah. a, a measurable trend, which is really cool. And he gets into it a bit. So improved nutrition, cleaner environment, all this kind of stuff. In fact, my uncle is an example of that. Um, when he went to college, he actually grew six inches because he was so undernourished wow. at home. <laughs> wow. yeah. And then he grew six inches and he's uh, six, four now. But anyway, uh, the fifth one there is war is illegal. Right. And yeah, it's interesting what he gets into there when he talks about the creation of the United Nations in 1945 and uh, all this kind of stuff. So we probably need to shut it down. Uh, I have 15 other questions from the audience yeah. that we didn't get to uh, get to get to. But is there anything off the top of your mind that you want to share? You've shared a lot, but anything else that you want to? Well, I probably cover? should explain the Racer X thing real quick. Okay. All right. Um, so my parents, for whatever reason, were not prepared for my arrival and had not picked out a name. And so, obviously, um, Speed Racer was a popular program in the 70s and early, or late 60s, early 70s. And so, they named me Racer X um, because they didn't have a name for me. Legally? You yeah, were legally named Racer X? I, well, I, I don't know when they actually issue the birth certificate, but for like a week, I was named Racer X. <laughs> Either That's way, that, that is awesome. High five, Matt's parents. And then, by the way, they picked the least creative name because I, my, my graduating class had 76 people, the majority of which were female, so male minority. We had five Matt's in my class. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I would, I, can I be Racer X again? Maybe I should change my name. You should, you should oh, change it. Strong irony there. I love oh, it. That, I is, love that it. is so funny. What a fun yeah. story. <laughs> all right shut it down tyler uh, we have to have man. you back thank you for joining us though yeah absolutely yes. great to be here oh my gosh matt thank you so much for coming on thanks for taking us down some uh some fun rabbit holes there um we, sure, we absolutely love to have you back on uh especially if you go read through that book i i'm probably going to read through it like three times at this point because i want to try to remember as many of those facts as i can but thank you for joining us and thank everyone out there for listening that brings another tech breakfast podcast to a close I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. We hopefully will have another session just like this. Give us your feedback. Give us more questions. Let us know how we're doing. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. And share with your friends. Uh, if if you think you know somebody that would enjoy this show, um, push it out there. We We want more feedback, and we get that by having more listeners. So cheers, everybody. Have a great weekend.